Hi everyone and welcome back to the Future of Mobile Health Apps podcast. So today we're extremely lucky to be joined by Mariam Shokrala, a digital health strategist consultant at WHO. Um, welcome Mariam and thank you so much for joining us today and I think our listeners would love if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your interest in mobile health. Uh, sure. Hello, Habiba, and hello, everybody. It's such a pleasure to be with you today. Um, so my name is Mariam Shokrala. I am a digital health strategist and um, currently doing some consultancy with the World Health Organization and headquarters in Geneva. Um, a little bit about myself. I, yeah, I just, yeah, I have a double master's in European public health and leadership and governance in European public health. And um I'm super fascinated by how technology and how health tra- and how digital transformation can change our health systems towards uh, being more equitable and more efficient and more accessible to a lot of people. Um, so this is like my overall passion. <laughs> Uh, backwards, I am a pharmacist by training and I used to be a medical device regulator in the Egyptian Drug Authority for seven or eight years before I started my journey into public health and uh, my journey with uh, digital technologies in general. <laughs> so yeah, so I am super interested at the intersection to work at the intersection between public health, healthcare system, um, and digital technology. So this is um, what makes me happy every day. <laughs> wow. Um, so you just said a little bit about accessibility and I'd like to kind of go into that a little bit more. So um, the aim is always, as you said, to make healthcare more accessible. But um, how do we extend this to digital health? Because there are some barriers which do affect some groups disproportionately. What are your opinions on that? Yeah, sure. This is exactly what everybody now is is starting to realize after COVID. Um, With COVID and everybody trying to go to digital technologies uh, to solve um, issues around the fact that we cannot come together, you cannot go to your appointment. So uh, we resort to digital technologies, but then quickly we realize that a lot of people, because of the current digital divide, which is a very known phenomenon that's already have existed in the world, which basically some people at its simplest form have access to a smartphone and internet and a computer where actually now become a life utility and it's not a luxury anymore for you to access a lot of things in life, especially in COVID, let alone if you need these devices to access health services, which is exactly what governments have started to use digital technologies to um, extend health services to, to their populations at the comfort of their home. But then, Imagine yourself if you don't have a device, if you don't have a stable internet, if you don't have the skills to engage with platforms, which is a little bit complicated. Sometimes they are written in a language that you don't understand. Sometimes they are written in a literacy level that you don't understand. So so now everybody starts to kind of realize, oh, we still have to think about the makeup, the health literacy and the digital literacy of a makeup of our population in order to extend this, let alone all the other technical barriers about data and the amount of data that's going to be generated with these digital health tools and how ready is our health systems to receive this data and streamline them with the clinical data that we have. So there is a lot of structures, issues uh, that need to be tackled, but again, you still see how accessibility to health service has been increased just using digital technologies, even to people who just can use technology during COVID. So instead of them just, um, if you are a diabetic patient and you just cannot or advise not to go to the hospital anymore during COVID, 
now at least you can sit with the with your with your um, healthcare provider in a teleconference in a teleconference and you start talking about your uh, your depression or your diabetes and you do your follow up uh, care. So this is still a blessing. But now as we streamline the digital transformation agenda. We still need to think about these barriers and these um, disproportionate vulnerabilities of different populations, sometimes due to age, sometimes due to education, sometimes due to the digital divide, like their digital literacy, sometimes just because of the generation, sometimes also just because people have different type of uses of internet and, and behaviors in how they engage with internet. So even younger population, it's very simplistic if you can just assume that younger population will use internet, but they don't have a lot of purposeful use when they use internet, right? So it's a very different thing than you have a phone and you have internet. So even if you have a phone, you have internet, um, it's a very different um, mode of usage of internet if you just use it to scroll through your Instagram versus if you are aware that you can use your phone as a health device, to improve your health every single day and improve the health of your of your uh, family. So that's a different notion that just only sits in people's mind and we still need to bring this awareness to every lay person um, of the population around us. So this is the only way we can increase accessibility to mHealth apps. Yeah, and we've actually been working on some of the things you've been saying. So we um, released a leaflet um, to in eight different languages about mobile health apps and the benefits and we're delivering those in kind of cosmopolitan areas across the um, across London. Um, and also we um, spoke to AGK and we kind of did a workshop and or like a walkthrough of how to download mobile health apps and just trying to address some of these structural barriers and make it kind of an equal level playing field for everyone. Um, so you talked a little bit about integration of health apps into healthcare systems like the NHS. How do you think that we can integrate healthcare apps into the NHS and kind of other healthcare systems? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's a million dollar question, I think, because as we start to realize more and more the benefit of mHealth apps and how we and the different case use that we can use it from prevention and even promotion until treatment and self-management of patients. Um, now, this happens because there is a lot of data that's patient-generated through these apps and through these tools. So one of the biggest barriers uh, or one of the biggest things that we still need to wrap our head around uh, to start talking about integration of mHealth and health systems is how we can streamline this data into the clinical data that's already generated in the clinical setting and, and allow this seemingly to happen in order to understand better this patient and then and then uh, structure the intervention that's actually more patient-centered. So this is a little bit uh, hard because we still have to figure out the quality level of the patient-generated data that come out through mHealth apps. And then we have to understand also the security aspect, the cybersecurity aspect of how this data is going to be channeled through the normal channels of data in the clinical setting, how far the doctors are going to be able to integrate all this data because again the doctors would say oh my god if I have all this data coming about the patient and I have the best intention of uh, in my heart to the patient I want to take him take care of him to the best but then this is so overwhelming to me the amount of information overload for doctors and professionals to process the amount of data coming from him health apps probably is going to be super high 
if we did not come up with a system that allowed this data to seemingly interact with the clinical data, <clears throat> with the clinical data that's generated in clinical setting and then bring out or flash out using big data and artificial intelligence, flag out, uh, flash out um, like ready-made consumable, easy to use uh, messages and like summaries about the patient to the doctors because the doctors also don't have enough time uh, to engage with that amount of data. So this is one thing. The second thing is, of course, how we can how we can weave in health apps into the service delivery care model that we are providing now in every single aspect of a disease and also along the continuum of care. So from promotion till self-management of a patient. So promotion, prevention, prevention, um, early diagnosis, and then um, or early detection, or early even speculation about the patient. We can now say, uh, if I have an AI-based app and I can say, oh, you probably might have cancer in eight years. And now I have to intervene well with this patient to, to provide him with uh, better support. So, so, you know, so we have to still think about the continuum of care that we have in our health system and where exactly we can plug in health solutions to bring max or maximize the amount of benefit that we can come up with. And this is something, this is very revolutionary. This is not how healthcare system has been operating for years and years. Now, the other aspect is you would have to think about the makeup of the health system as it sits it. Uh, in its own. So for example, in and if NHS model where you have the same provider as the same payer, so you have a little bit of aligning of incentives already to maximize benefits and to use tools. And probably if you have an aligned decision-making about um, what tools we should put in place, plus the funding in the same, the same person have to, have to uh, decide about both of them, then it might be an easier option for you to actually opt to in-health rather than if you sit in a healthcare system where the person who pay, basically the insurer, is super different than the provider of the care, is super different than the regulator of the tool that you would have to use. So now if you have a very decentralized decision-making about how a tool could be integrated in healthcare uh, and different stakeholders are actually engaging in this cycle, then you have to engage all these stakeholders in order to make up one coherent uh, and coordinated decision about how mHealth can be integrated in healthcare services. And then the third part will be actually, we just have to be creative because mHealth is also just challenging our level of creativity about what a care pathway for a patient in different disease looks like. So, uh, and, and this is something that we still need to wrap our head around. Uh, and on the clinical aspect, we still need to have a lot of work to do around how we can integrate health or, or understand the, the benefit of mHealth abs with all its variety, because now, you know, I'm talking with you about abs, but actually abs have a very different, they are very, very diverse. They have very different case use. They have very different severity also, and based on the clinical claim that they claim. So um, so the way, for example, you will engage additional therapeutic in, in, in healthcare pathway, or you try to incorporate it in a clinical protocol uh, of care about cancer or diabetes is super different than how you just integrate um, wellness app, which does not claim that much, but still allow people to change their lifestyle 
in the service. And then now the biggest issue is who is going to pay for it? So, um, and you know, for this, I'm, I'm, um, it's one of my interesting uh, observation around it. When I used to live in the States, it was super easy for population or for every lay person to kind of like, yeah, let's hop on Google or an Apple store and try to find an app to allow me to drink more water, for example. And then even if there is a subscription attached to this app, they actually are willing to pay for it because it's a free market type of health system in the, in the States. Now, if you come to Europe, which is more of a social type of health system, um, you come here and you see even the culture expectations of every single person is more about that the health system should reimburse every single thing or tool I'm using for my health. So you see how the population perception about who's going to pay about my health tools is going to change the type of incentives and also the type of communication we have to do around mHealth apps in order to successively integrate them. So, so following the example, if you look at the European population, if the health system is trying to push mHealth and try to integrate in the services, populations are expecting health systems to figure out prior to this, who's going to pay for it. And they're not, they're kind of like excluding themselves from the fact that they can pay for it. Well, this is not the notion in the States. So you see how there is a cultural aspect of understanding of the expectations on the relationship between populations and their health systems that we still need to understand before we can integrate health apps in the services. And of course, on its basic level, do you trust to get your health service from an app? Do you feel comfortable doing this? This is like the basic thing <laughs> about it. So, so um, yeah, so these are like some of my thoughts about this, but we still have a long way to go. <laughs> um, and yeah, maybe the last thing I just want to mention is like the amount of change management that this all will entail. Because um, yeah, this now you will have to talk with different stakeholders to change their practice, to change the way populations interact with their health systems the way they interact, um, they get their, their care, their needs met from uh, their health system. So, so this is a big change management that needs to be dealt um, with a careful understanding of how people are, are wanting, wanting themselves to be served by their health services and how to do this in a patient-orientated way rather than the service-orientated way or government-orientated way, which has always been the notion of health systems so far. So, yeah, so we have a lot of work to do in that sense. Something um, that you said that I found really interesting was that wellness apps and preventative apps, they're so, they're completely different. And because, you know, the NHS is so focused on um, sickness rather than wellness, it's like um, prevention isn't really integrated into it that much. How, do you think there'll be more challenges in terms of preventative apps being integrated? Because that's what we've been kind of seeing. Yeah, actually, this is, yeah, it is super interesting because, uh, yeah, because we have a history of not making a good case of prevention policies in general in health systems, unfortunately. We could not figure out the health economics around it. We, we're, we still haven't done enough in creating awareness about prevention rather than treatment at the end. Um, and now this is exactly the same point that digital health is perceived to incorporate all of its usage, which is like, let's shift, you know what, 
let's shift the health system from a demand to decrease, so from in, trying to increase the supply to decreasing the demand by using more preventive healthcare. Um, but then from an economic standpoint of view, we have all, we have these battles about how can you create the health economic um, case of using preventive care in general. Uh, but I think we're getting better and better in this. Um, and to be honest, COVID has helped us in, 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 in letting everybody and letting politicians and policymakers and stakeholders understand that it is crazy to leave the tap open and try to dry the floor while actually you can just close the tap and then you can dry the floor, you know? <laughs> so uh, you just help people with preventive actions, with health promotion that in, it, in, it change their health lifestyle, it tackle mental health issues, which is like everyday thingy. Um, and these are the ones that this is how you can stop people from being obese, stop being from people diabetic in the first place. And then you still treat people. I'm not saying that you're not treating people, but you prevent them from becoming patients in the first place. So we still have a lot to do. And also, yeah, so we still have to structure services that are around prevention and promotion. We still have to advocate a lot about the health economics of preventive and health awareness uh, programs uh, on a public health perspective. Um, and we still also have to still find good tools that allow us to do this, uh, pre this prevention um, activities. Because you know what, one of the hardest things in human life is behavior change. And preventive action, preventive healthcare is all about behavior change. And sometimes it's sometimes it's about culture change. Sometimes you know, so um, so this is one of the hardest things. So we still need to understand how psychology, how behavior change science can be incorporated into digital health tools effectively and make these tools fun and human to engage with, that allow you to use them to change your behavior so you be, you don't become a patient at the end. And this is how we can support population. But I think. So I still, I think now everybody understand the concept more. I think COVID have become the best campaigner for preventive medicine, but we still have a lot to do around um, good tools, around um, creating the health economics around it, advocating for it, continuously advocating for it, uh, and also thinking on how the preventive action is a part of a continuum of health care. Um, so yes, so this is why it is super exciting. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. So we actually actually touched on quite a few interesting points um, and that there's, there needs to be culture change and, and that sort of thing as well within these healthcare systems. And, and obviously whilst COVID has made the case for increasing prevention, what we've seen in, from our interviews and in that is that there's been quite a lot of uh, resistance from healthcare professionals, especially because either they don't want to change their way of working or they don't have the time or they say that there's no clear regulations on who's responsible for all this influx of data that they're going to be getting because now it's not just a consultation that they're having to go through and, and extract the data from and analyze, but rather yeah. they have to safety net and, and sort of make a plan for all this other influx of data, especially if there's any red flags or something from, from, the, from the mobile health app. So in your opinion, how can we sort of reduce healthcare professionals' resistance towards mHealth apps? Yeah, before I give you my opinion, I would actually more 
want to complicate this case more. And I was like, add on top of it, the legal liability aspect of it, that a lot of healthcare professionals are starting to think. And I was like, yes, if a patient send me a piece of information, am I responsible to how to timely look at it? I was like, are you expecting me to look at it? Like at every single message coming from my patient on the platform? Or do I have a working hours, you know? such a simple detail that uh, that is so much um, interacting with the medical liability of patients. Like, what about if a patient say, oh, um, what about if the patient did not share everything through his health app, if we did depend if we depended on this health app to be the only communication between the patient and the doctor you know so so we still need to think about all these things but i think there is a way that one there is champions and pioneers in medical practitioners in clinicians who really understand um the benefit that digital that good digital health tool can bring to the table uh, and i think these pioneers are Let's start with them, you know, let's highlight their opinions. Let's try uh, to give them platforms so they can engage with other clinicians uh, in these conversations. Because again, these digital tools are not actually done away from clinicians. They are done with clinicians. So actually clinicians can voice these type of reluctance and they have a lot of um, of uh, right in, in what they are saying because the medical model of prescribing a drug uh, that identify your liability or, or the care for a patient from a medicine, from a physician or clinician perspective is about, yes, I have to have access to all information. And I also have to have a control and a clear understanding on what I am prescribing. So until this happens, there will be always a reluctance. But then this reluctance uh, sit on different levels. So some reluctance is more about the awareness and some reluctance is about that we have serious issues to really tackle about the effectiveness and clarifying the effectiveness of medical apps, clarifying how actually medical apps bring a clear um, benefit to the clinician as well so not only the patient because if we start to position digital health in a way that it it bring benefit or a value to the patient itself because we are trying to advocate for it to be a patient-centric while it does not bring a value or it increase the burden of work on clinicians we're not doing good we're not doing the right thing here so as long as clinicians when clinicians sorry when clinicians start to see the clear benefit that comes to them um, then they i think this reluctance is going to decrease now the second part is about um, them understanding how different patients also can engage differently with these digital health tools um, so for example one of the one of the biggest promises for example for digital health was we're going to decrease the amount of time you need to sit in front of the patient. And actually you're not sitting giving care to patient, you're actually just typing things, right? And now if we are demanding them to look at the a platform that pull data, for example, from their mHealth app that they are using for different um, diseases, and then they have to look at it. This is an extra screen time for a doctor that's not a quality time in their eyes in how they engage with their patients. So now we start to think about, for example, um, voice detection tools that actually can help uh, doctors in that sense. So, yeah, so I, I think the baseline is 
let's uh, increase the voice of pioneers and clinicians who are more open in general to technology and they are part of these teams that, that produce these digital health tools um, and allow them to engage with their peers um, in these very critical discussions. I mean, these are very, very critical, good discussions actually that push everyone forward. And then on the same time, um, work on the structural system thing, system issues that we have we have discussed before. And on the third aspect is to clarify and advocate clearly the value of digital health and mHealth apps from a clinician perspective. And not only just from a patient perspective or even from a health system perspective. So, um, so I think these are the three main parts, which is not easy still, but these are the three parts. And then, sorry, and then the last one would be like the medical education. It's exactly like yourself as, as, um, as students who are still, who are um, very, very exposed to technology, who are more like tech generation type of thing. Yeah, I think this is so, so again, the technology and digital technology is not per se technological technical issue. It's a cultural generational issue um, that, that, that is put in place. So um, yeah, so I think these are like the four main things that I would say in this point that comes to my mind.